Thank you, Russell, for all you've done for our church and for leading us in worship this morning. He has to come all the way from Abilene, so it's good news when you get to come, and it's bad news when you have to leave because you have to go back to Abilene. First Peter chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. Last week we started First Peter after our long journey through Genesis. Uh, so we covered two verses. Today we're going to start in verse 3, and we're going to work our way all the way down through verse 5. So, just to uh, set the context for us and, and make sure we understand, this is written by Peter, the apostle of Jesus, uh, who is the main disciple, the, the lead disciple, was one of the uh, men who was instrumental in the New Testament church. Much about Peter is written uh, in the Gospels when the disciples are talking and Jesus is talking to the disciples Peter speaks more than any other apostle that's been written about. Uh, and so there's good things. Peter says a lot of good things, and Peter also has a foot-shaped mouth and says some not good things as well. One of my favorite stories with Peter is he, he denies Jesus three times when, when Jesus is going through the illegal trials and before the crucifixion, and then when Jesus is resurrected, Peter and, and the guys are fishing on a boat, and there's this correlation when, when Jesus first calls Peter, Peter's fishing on a boat. They fish all night long, they don't catch anything, which is embarrassing for a man, and it's extremely embarrassing for a professional fisherman. And so Jesus goes, and he says, cast your nets on the other side. They catch this net. They bring it in, and it starts ripping. Well, this time, after the resurrection, Peter's fishing. He's fished all night long, and he's caught nothing. And some guy from the side yells, cast your nets on the other side, and he does. And the nets are filled with fish, and then they realize it's Jesus. And so Peter dives into the water. He puts his coat on, then he dives into the water. He swims to shore. Jesus has a nice breakfast sitting there for him. And then three times, Jesus asks Peter to feed my sheep. He says, do you love me? And Peter says, you know that I love you. He says, feed my sheep. Three times, do you love me? You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? You know that I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. And so what Peter does is he's instrumental in the New Testament church. He's feeding Christ's sheep. And so we see him doing in this passage, too. He writes to this group of people that he calls the chosen or the, uh, the elect exiles of the dispersion or, or that are dispersed abroad. He names these churches. Most likely what it is is it's the route that the messenger of this letter is going to walk and give the message to. So he goes to these churches, they read the letter, they copy the letter, and then from those churches they would disperse it to some of the smaller churches, and they just kind of walk their way through. All of them are in uh, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey for us, and the northern part of it. All of them were in the Roman providence at this time. And so what's happening at this point in culture is, is persecution is not fully broken out against Christianity yet. There's not a, a state persecution against Christians, but it's coming, and it's coming quickly. There's going to be social pressures. Uh, there's going to be things that push against Christians, but at this point in the story, it's not quite there yet. And so Peter spent a lot of time and spends a lot of time in the letter relating this group of Christians that he's writing to, which, again, is a lot of churches and broad churches that he's doing so, saying, using language that's going to tie them to the Old Testament people of God. Elect, exiles, dispersion, all of which would relate to that. What Peter's doing is he's saying uh, these churches would be mixed. There would be mainly Gentiles in these churches, and then there would be some Jewish believers. And so what Peter's doing is he's saying, listen, just because you're a Gentile, it doesn't mean you're a second-class Christian. You are a people of God just as much as anybody else is. 
He walks through the Trinity, how God saves. It's a, a triune, a Trinitarian work. The Father plans it, the Son does the work, and the Spirit applies the work to our hearts and to our souls. And so this morning we're going to walk through the, uh, the next kind of section. And what I like about the New Testament letters is they just build upon each other. So the more we dive in, the more Peter, the more Paul, and any of them builds upon the argument that they're making. So I want to pray, and then we're going to walk through this passage just like we have been. God, we thank you for today. We thank you that we do get to gather together. I thank you that we do get to sing songs to you. That, God, there, are, there is social pressure for us as Christians. There are things that the world asks of us that we as Christians abstain from. But, God, we're grateful that, that we have not yet had to resist to, to giving up our lives. I pray as we walk through this letter that you've given us that reveals yourself to us, that you would move our hearts, that you would grow us, that you would help us to be seated, to be placed in you, God, where we can understand your great mercy where we can understand the living hope that is the resurrection of Jesus, that we can understand the inheritance that you have given us, the salvation that you've guarded for us. Grow us in you this morning, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I want to pause there and just walk through this verse because there's a whole lot here for us to unpack. Did you catch how Peter started it? Normally when we talk about a blessing, we would talk about how the Lord has blessed us, but that's not how Peter starts this verse. He says, blessed be God. That's different than the way we typically speak of a blessing. Rarely, I think, would any of us go, I'm going to bless God because what do we have that would bless the Lord? What gift do you get the person who's created everything and can make anything that they want? See, the idea of blessing is is throughout the Bible... Uh, it, the idea of blessing when it's from the Lord to us is it's anything that brings us closer to God. So we saw in Genesis that God blessed Abraham so that Abraham would be a blessing to the other nations. That was a part of the covenant that God made with Abraham. But we also saw that the Lord blessed Lot and let Lot go and pick the place that was going to be more materially prosperous for him. And it was a blessing not because it ended up good for Lot, but because the Lord grew Lot to himself through times that were trying and difficult. The Lord let Lot choose that land so that Abraham was blessed by God by having the land that didn't produce as much and wasn't struggling as much as Lot was with prosperity. But how do we bless God? This begs the question, does God sneeze? Is that when we do it? The reality is we can't bless God. We have nothing to give God that he does not already own. See, what Peter's doing here, and it happens in the Bible some, it's not super common, is that God gives us blessings and we declare God blessed. It's got this this weight of worship with it. God blesses us and we in turn declare, we worship, we glory in the Lord. And then Peter moves on and he says he's the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of the false religions that that claim to use the Bible as their basis 
will take texts like this one and they will twist it and they will manipulate it to change the deity and the nature of Jesus to fit their religion. I'm pointing this out because there's two prominent ones around us that do this that we need to be aware of. Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness will both do this with the deity of Jesus. They will take a text like this and they'll say, see, Jesus isn't God. He's the son of God. And then they'll argue that that also means that Jesus is created. And the Mormons will argue that since there's a a God the Father, there must be a God the Mother. None of that is biblical. None of that is what the Bible teaches. All of that is false. All of that is lies. All of that uses the same language and even passages in the Bible, but it's not what God is revealing himself to be. Bad theology, heresy, false religions will take texts of Scripture and twist them and manipulate them. And so for us, what we have to do is read the Bible in its entirety, not just a verse here or there. We read the Bible as God revealing himself to us. So I walked through verse 2 last week, which talks about the triune God, that God saves uh, by the Father planning, the Son accomplishing, and the Spirit applying. Each person, key word, the Godhead is the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, a person of God, not a mode, not a personality, one person, or three persons and one God. Each person is completely and fully God in and of themselves, yet there's one God. There's not three different gods, and each person is also distinct. The Father's not the Spirit. The Spirit's not the Son. The Son's not the Father. And so what Peter is saying here is he's simply expounding on what he's already said, that God is triune, one God and three persons, and that the relationship between the Father and the Son is that of a father and a son. The Son wasn't created. Jesus has always been around. We know that from from John, from Revelation, from Romans. Rather, what what, what Peter is telling us is that Jesus was sent by the Father as the Son. Like a father who has an important task to take care of and he doesn't trust the hired hands, he sends his own Son to go do it instead. And then sometimes we'll read the name of Jesus and we just jump past it. And I don't want to do that here. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord means like master, owner, ruler. And so if Jesus is Lord, it means that Jesus is the boss. And so we do what Jesus says and we don't do what Jesus says not to do. And if Jesus tells us a certain way to do things, then we do those things. That way. It means we're submissive to Jesus. When we proclaim Christ as Lord of our life, it means we set ourselves under Christ's rule and we obey because he's the boss. The word Jesus in, in, in Hebrew or in, in uh, um, Greek, it carries a meaning with it. Our, our names that we use now don't tend to do this. We don't tend to name our kids meanings that we want our kids to be. Maybe you did if you named your kid like Grace or, or Faith or something like that. Maybe you had that idea with your kids. But most of the time for us, it's a family name. That's what Benjamin is for our family. It's named after my great-grandfather. Or maybe you just like the way the name sound. That's what we did with Adel and Brennan Cannon. Also, ABC. Make sure I know which one's the oldest. That's right. No, we're done. We're done. Jesus uh, is Yeshua. If you hear people say Yeshua or Joshua. It means Yahweh saves. 
So God the Father saves his people by sending his son who's named God saves to accomplish the salvation for them. And then we have Christ. It's not Jesus' last name, it's a title. All throughout the Old Testament, Genesis, a big storyline we had in Genesis was trying to trace the line of the snake crusher. In the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, we're always looking for this Messiah that's supposed to come. The one who's the anointed one from God, who's going to take all the wrong things and make them right. And so in Hebrew, it's Messiah. In Greek, it's Christ. It's the same word. It's just translated different for different languages. And so Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title to identify him as the one who is the Messiah, the snake crusher that was proclaimed about in Genesis 3. He's the one who steps and crushes on the head of Satan. So we take all of those things together and we look at Jesus' name, which we often just say the Lord Jesus Christ. But what we're really saying when we mean what we're saying there, we're saying that Jesus is the ruler who God sent to save his people by crushing the head of Satan and he's saving us out of sin. So the question we have to ask is why in the world would God ever do that for us? We saw that God is trying. There's a trinity. So God's not lonely before we exist. He has perfect community within himself. Perfect fellowship within the Godhead. And when mankind sin, when God creates us and then we sin, we bring this curse upon ourselves. It's man's fault. Our sin is our fault. It's not God's. And so for God to be just, it means that God has to punish sin. And thus those who are sinners. To crush the head of the serpent, that's what has to take place. But instead, what we see the Bible talking about is instead of you and I being crushed and and killed because of our sin, instead of Adam and Eve just being completely wiped out from the beginning, from before time began, the Father set about this plan to exalt, to glory himself. That of all the options and all the things that God could have done, this path that he has set forward, this path that he is directing, this path that he is providential over is what gives God the most glory. And what gives God the most glory is him showing us his great mercy. There's no other reason why God would save us. God God looks on us in his foreknowledge that we talked about last week and he sees the way for him to be most glorified is not by pressing down the hammer of justice and obliterating us but rather showing us a mercy that is foreign to us. He looks at us and he doesn't hope that we might get our act together. He looks at us and he sees no hope in and of ourselves. He sees these little rebels running around the garden that think that we can usurp his authority. He sees our selfishness. He sees our pride. He sees our arrogance. He sees our weakness. He sees our fear. He sees our anxieties. He sees us to our core. He sees us better than we could ever see ourselves. And what God does is he says, I'm going to have mercy on them instead of crush them. That's the eternal motivation for salvation from God. He looked and he saw hopeless people who need to be saved but did not deserve salvation and would never deserve it. 
sometimes we get mercy and grace confused. And, and it's two sides of the same coin, but we want to make sure we understand what we're talking about. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we do not deserve. So mercy is about a person's condition. Grace is about the guilt that's caused that condition. Mercy takes the sinner from misery to glory, while grace takes the sinner from uh, guilty to, to innocent. From guilty to acquitted, if we want to stay with the legal term. It changes their position. So mercy is not having the wrath of God poured out on us, which we deserve. Grace is being given the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we did not earn. There's a difference. It's the same side of the coin, but it's this picture of the mercy and grace of God. And it's because God's great mercy for us, the motivation for our salvation, that he gives us new life. A new birth, as Peter says. There's a story in John 3 that you may know of with a man named Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus, he's a Pharisee, and he says, I know you're a teacher from God because you're doing all of these signs that nobody else can do. He won't say he's God, right? That would be, he considers that blasphemy. If you claim somebody's God and they're not God, it's blasphemy. What Nicodemus and the other Pharisees and scribes didn't understand is it's not blasphemy to call Jesus God because he is God. But Nicodemus says, Jesus, you do all these signs. No one else can do these signs unless they're from God. And Jesus looks at this Pharisee and he says, unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. I relate to Nicodemus more than I want to admit because he's very literal. Do you know what Nicodemus' response to this is? I just imagine this Pharisee's wheels turning in his head. He says, so do we like go back to our mother's womb? Like, how do we be born again? That doesn't make sense. He's only seeing these physical, external realities of life. And what Jesus is saying is that this sin, that this new birth is not outside of you, but it's something that takes place within you. It's being born again. It's having new life. And when you have this new life, what happens is you see this kingdom that you were, didn't even know existed beforehand. It's by God's mercy alone that you and I can be born again. Because the first time we're born, we're born with a sinful nature that we've inherited. And in that sinful nature, we do not desire God. But out of God's mercy, in a way that glorifies God, God the most, where the Father plans it and the Son accomplishes it and the Spirit applies it to our life. We're saved and we're given a new life. It's by God's grace and mercy alone that any person is saved at any point in time. It's not by our works that we're saved. What did we do the first time we were born to give life, to get life? Nothing. The second time around is the same. God gives us mercy, not by anything we've done, but because it glorifies himself. Now, we're still called to repent. We're 
deal called to put our faith in Jesus, but our salvation is never credited to us. It is always an act and a work from God. So when we're saved, we're saved by God, not by my choice. It's the Lord working in us. It's the Spirit working in us to give us new life and to give us a new birth. And when we have been reborn again, what Peter tells us we have is now a living hope. You see how this works? Blessed be God, the Lord, uh, uh, God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he gives us a new life. And because of this new life, we now have a living hope. I, every year, when the Rockies do their draft and when the Broncos do their draft, there's a small hope inside of me that I'm eligible to play for the Broncos and the Rockies, and maybe they will draft me. It's a, not a good hope. I don't work out which is obvious. I do have a slight dream of being an NFL kicker because I think that's the most, like you get a lot of glory for doing very little. It's a faint hope. It's not going to happen. I just haven't come to grips with that yet. I have a slightly more realistic hope. I learned that in Iceland there's a certain lake where brown trout grow to three feet long. three-foot-long brown trout on a small fly line would be oatmeal cream pie good. It's a hope, but it's a distant hope at best, and it's not very bright. But I have some constant hopes in my life as well. And it's different. There's a constant hope from me that my wife will always love me. And I don't have that hope because she doesn't, although it would be earned. I have that hope because it's a foundation of our marriage. It's a foundation of our love. That there are days when we naturally love each other and there are days when we have to wake up and choose to love each other. But either way, that love is a hope there that is constant. That's not a fading hope. I try to instill that kind of hope in my kids. I admittedly fail, but I try to tell them often that I love you not because you obey me. I love you not because you're funny. I love you not because you're kind. I love you not because you're quiet, although those help. I tell them I love you because you're my kids. I can't love them anymore. I can't love them any less. I don't love them because what they bring into my life. I love them because the Lord has given me them as my kids. I'm their father. Addie and Bryn will be my daughters, and they will never not be. And Cannon will be my son, and he will never not be. I didn't choose my kids. The Lord didn't present us with options of, like, I'll take this one with blue hair and brown eyes or whatever. They didn't choose to have us as their parents. They weren't sitting up with Jesus, just, you know, swiping through profiles of families it's this love, it's this hope that exists I mean remember Peter's writing this letter to a group of Christians that are about to be persecuted pretty heavily 
They're already facing some persecution. There's social persecutions, right? They have signs of Christians not welcome here. But as far as anything physically intense, like that persecution's coming, but it's not here yet. And so Peter's telling these people, you need to root your identity as a people of God. He's using the same language as the Old Testament that God used for God's people in the Old Testament. He's bringing these Gentile believers in here. He's saying, you're not second-class Christians. You're one body of believers. You're children of God, and, and just as much as the Jewish believers who are worshiping with you. And even though you're about to be persecuted, what Peter's telling him is you have a living hope. It's not a hopeless situation that you face. And the reason the hope is alive is because Jesus is alive. If Jesus was still dead in the tomb, so is our hope. Now, he really did die. He didn't appear to be dead. He actually and fully died on the cross, was buried in the tomb, and was there for three days, even though he never sinned, even though he did not have the sinful nature that you and I are born with. He's born of the virgin birth. He does not deserve death, did not deserve death, yet he faced death for you and for I. This is mercy from God, and it's only applied to us because God has mercy on us. It's mercy from God because Jesus takes our punishment, which means the punishment from God is still paid. God is still just. The wrath of God was satisfied. On the cross, Jesus climbed and he drank the cup of wrath for you and me. Why would Jesus do that? Because of his great mercy. He loved us when we were the most unlovable. The Bible doesn't say we loved God and so he begrudgingly went to the cross. It says he loved us when we did not love him. It's because of that great mercy that Jesus looks into the depths of who we are, into our hearts and into our souls, and he sees all of it. He sees the nasty. He sees the sin. He sees the gross, horrible, dark things within us. He sees our pride. He sees our selfishness. He sees our arrogance. He sees our lack of desire for him, and he, because of his great mercy, doesn't get off of the cross. He dies resurrected three days later and we know that if we are born again if we are saved by Jesus that death won't hold us either not because we have power but because Jesus paid our price and when Jesus pays our price we are adopted into the family of God with brothers and sisters so we get to gather each week with one another we get to to meet others some we gather with each week right if we're Christians we're gathering here with brothers and sisters other brothers and sisters we have in Christ we won't meet until the other side of Christ coming back in glory the other reality we have is we're not just taken once we're saved you realize that God in all of his wisdom could say as soon as someone becomes a believer I'm going to pluck them from their circumstances I'm going to bring them with me into heaven and they will glory with me forever instead he leaves us where we're at we have a new birth and we have this living hope and that's meant to be lived out in front of people who are still living in their old birth and are hopeless
But what you and I need to understand and what we miss because we live in America and we live in West Texas, but these people that Peter are writing to fully grasp, our fellow brothers and sisters in China right now who are being persecuted for being Christians, what they understand is that if we claim to be Christians, if we are following the Christ, if we are believers in Jesus, the world hates us. And we become targets for persecution. There's too many times when the Bible says you will be persecuted for us to just ignore it blindly. For most of us, it probably will be social. But you know, I do not get invited to parties very often. But brothers and sisters, our lives are meant to be lived different than the world's. We as humans will put our hope in all sorts of things. We'll put our hope in the right political party. We'll put our hope in the right children. We'll put our hope in the right educational system. We'll put our hope in the right uh, value system. We'll put our hope in the right morals. We'll put our hope in the right career. We'll put our hope in the right spouse. We'll put our hope in the right community, etc., etc. We will cling to anything that gives us some semblance of hope. And when those things fail, for unbelievers, what are they left with? Nothing. It's hopeless. What about you and I? If we're believers in Jesus Christ and we have a living hope, if our political system fails, if our party that we want to win fails, we're not hopeless. We have something else. Verse 4. And into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you what does someone do to earn an inheritance nothing I didn't choose the family I was born into you didn't choose the family you were born into we were just born this is a part of what makes adoption so beautiful is because there is sin, there is failure, but because of grace and mercy for adopted families, for adopted kids, there's a family waiting to adopt you, to bring you into the family. I have a friend who's adopted three kids into his family, and it's very obvious that these kids are not their biological children. And sometimes people will talk to them about their kids, and, and they don't think through things. And they're not meaning to be like making a, a point or a statement, but they'll say something like, well, are you wanting your own kids? And he always corrects them. I've watched him do it tells them these kids are just as much my kids as anybody's that like if I have my own kid that, that they will ever be as members complete in full in a family we're given this inheritance we're not second class believers and I love that Paul describes this inheritance to remember people who are about to be persecuted if they have any money and they claim to be Christian, it's likely about to be taken by the government, by local authorities, by whatever comes across and sweeps through their way. And so Peter tells them, this inheritance that you're going to get is imperishable. That means it's not going to go away. This inheritance that you're going to get, it's undefiled. That means it's clean, it's pure. Nothing is going to get into it that's going to stain it and make it unclean or impure. This inheritance that you're going to get is unfading. It never becomes less. It doesn't ride the stock market up and down. It's in the hands of the Lord. 
My dad passed away. He left a box for my brother and I to open, and, and, and my dad loved collecting baseball cards. And I have some cool baseball cards. I've got a Milk Duds box with a baseball player on it. I've got some, some neat ones that, that, that I enjoy, that I look at, but I've never been that big into collecting cards. Now, my dad died in 2000, so keep that in mind, because he put a baseball card in my brother and I's box of a rookie that he thought, in the note, he said, I don't know how the person's going to turn up, but here's a rookie card. Uh, and I brought it right here. I don't know if you can see it. It's of Sammy Sosa. <laughs> it's a perfect illustration. If you know Sammy Sosa, you know there was a time when he was one of the best hitters in the major league. Him and Mark McGuire going at the home run record back and forth trying to get it. There was a point in time. I didn't know I had this card because I had before I was 18. But this was a valuable card. And then he retired. And it comes out that there were steroids that were being used. The value of my card plummeted. <laughs> it loses its value. What Peter's telling these people is this inheritance that you have waiting for you is not subject to whether Sammy Sosa took steroids when he hit home runs or not. This inheritance that you have coming is not related to whether we're going to have oil prices rise or fall. This inheritance that you have coming is not related to the strength of the dollar or the house that you've built. No, in fact, Peter tells us it's kept in heaven for us. The inheritance that Peter is talking about is not something we can lose because it's not something that's in our possession right now. It doesn't lose value. It doesn't become impure, and it does not fade. Our inheritance is nothing more nothing less than God himself that we're reconciled to God by the Father's plan, by the Son's work, and by the Spirit applying it. So our inheritance is this salvation that God gives to us. Look at verse 5. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. This idea of guarding here is the word used for armies. When your people are gathered together, you have an army set that's meant to guard you, that's meant to protect you. That we put our hope that the army doesn't fail. And we look at what Peter's saying is we're putting our living hope in the God who's not going to fail to not protect us. That he's given us this new birth and that we're given this new birth because God's great mercy, not because anything that we've done. And all of that is guarded by God, which means we can't lose it. God doesn't save us by no works of our own, for us to then work so bad to lose our salvation. Our salvation, if genuine and true, is not something we can unearn. Praise the Lord. It was never earned in the first place. And this is guarded by God's power, that He's guarding our, our inheritance, but did you catch what else He's guarding? Our faith. We will fail. But God empowers us. We're saved by faith in Jesus, and that faith is what we have that we will be kept by God. And the salvation that God is revealing to us is also for those who are being persecuted. Remember this original audience that it's being written to. Some of the people in these pews that Peter is writing to, when the persecution comes, are going to recant. 
And what Peter's saying is this salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time when, when suffering come, when persecutions come, or even when Jesus comes back the second time, real salvation will be revealed and all will know. And so it's a twofold thing Peter's doing here. It's a warning and it's an encouragement. What Peter's saying is make sure that this salvation that you have is not based on any other hope other than the living hope of Jesus Christ and Him resurrected. Because if it's based on that, you will endure even though you may lose your life. And if it's not based on that, it will be revealed in time. Charles Spurgeon has a, uh, an illustration I want to just read because it was so good when I was reading it. The swimmer who is ready to sink, if he sees a boat nearing him, plucks up courage and swims with all his strength because he now expects that the swimming will be of effectual service to him. The Christian amid the waves and the billows of adversity retains his hope, a glorious hope of future bliss, and therefore he strikes out like a man towards the heavenly shore. Hope buoys up the soul, keeps the head above water, inspires confidence, and sustains courage. What's hard for you and I is it is not hard to be a Christian in Ira. By and large, it's accepted and even expected for us to claim that. But what Peter's talking about, what Spurgeon's talking about, is not some cultural Christianity that says, check the box and act like a Christian. It's saying, you need a new life, a new birth, a living hope that doesn't come from within yourself, but it's outside in Jesus Christ. we wrap up our text this morning, I just want to plead with you for a couple things. I don't know where you're, no, to a degree, nobody but you and the Lord knows where you're at with the Lord. So my plea for you is to understand the mercy of God, and if you're an unbeliever, repent and turn to Jesus today. We're promised a lot of things in the Bible, but one thing we are not promised is to take another breath. For believers who are here, we have no other hope. It's this living hope that buoys our souls and keeps our head above water. And there are some days when maybe only the nose is sticking out of the water. Cling to Jesus and trust in Him. Grow in Him. Repent of the areas we need to repent of and turn to Jesus. Because it's through Jesus that in the end salvation, whether we're believers or not, will be revealed if God has guarded that faith of ours. If we have this inheritance that's imperishable and undefiled and unfading, if, if we have this true living hope that was resurrected from the dead, Jesus is not dead, he is alive at this very moment. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God interceding for you and I. So when we pray, it doesn't fall on deaf ears, it falls on the ears of Jesus Christ. And because of that living hope, we get to receive God's great mercy. Not because anything you and I have done, but because we serve a great God that deserves to be glorified and worshipped. Let's bless God this morning.
Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that we get to come to you not as people who have life figured out, not as people who have it all together, but God, who people who might be struggling just to make it through today. God, we're grateful that the hope you've give us, given us, God, is not a dead hope, but a living hope that exemplifies the great mercy with which you've had on us. God, that for the believers here, life doesn't get easy. It often gets more difficult, but our hope is not in life getting easier and our comfort being unchanged. Our hope is in Christ and Him crucified. Help us to live that hope out in front of a world that's largely going to persecute us for that. But also, God, you've placed us in this world where we're at for a purpose and for a reason. Help the living hope that you've given us be a light and a gospel opportunity for those who are lost in our community. Help us to be bold with the gospel, Jesus. And I pray for those who, who are unbelievers that are here, that are hearing this. God, I pray that you would save them. That this great mercy with which you lavish on us, that you pour over us, God. This gospel that you died in our place would change their life fundamentally and in their hearts. They would repent. They would believe in you. God, that they would join the church and that we would get to help disciple one another in you. God, thank you that our hope is not in anything that is here. Our hope, our inheritance is in you. Help us to cling to you this morning. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand, Russell's going to lead us.